Welcome to the Redeemer Community Church podcast. The following audio is from Redeemer Community Church located in Johnson City, Tennessee. We hope it will be encouraging to you as you listen. Well, if you've got your Bibles, we're in Luke chapter 7 this morning. Luke chapter 7. Well, this week I was, I was reading up on Starbucks and what is it about Starbucks that allowed it to just be catapulted globally? And what, what, is, what is it about Starbucks that makes it so successful? Because I, mean, I was watching, obviously everybody in, that has kids is watching Dude Perfect right now. So we're watching continual Dude Perfect videos and one of the Dude Perfect videos, they're just judging coffee. And, um, and Starbucks coffee is just not that good. So how is Starbucks so successful? Well, they attribute it to being a third place. Back in 1989, there was a sociologist by the name of Ray Oldenburg who coined that phrase, third place. And, and basically the idea being, and this is, this is part of the strategy of Starbucks is to be a third place. Oldenburg would say that we all have three kingdoms that we have to balance. And so he said, there, there's the kingdom of work and that is a place that is structured. There's the kingdom of home where things need to be private. And then there's the kingdom of social places or third places. And he would say that these third places are so important for building community because it's these third places where people of different backgrounds get together. It's these third places where people learn empathy. It's these third places where, where we are able to envision ourselves as being a part of something bigger than ourselves. And so as I was reading about these third places, in light of being like Jesus, which is what we're focusing on this summer, living the way of life that Jesus modeled for us to live, I couldn't help but to wonder, what if the home, what if the table, the tables in which we ate at, what if those had rhythms of being more third place-ish? What if instead of letting our home be our private kingdom, we had rhythms where our home became social places as well? Well, so far this summer, we've talked about the rhythms of Jesus and fighting temptation and knowing God's word. We've talked about the importance of forgiveness and forgiving others. And today we're going to talk about a discipline that is not often talked about, um, a discipline that in all my spiritual discipline books, I haven't found a chapter on yet, but the discipline of reclining at the table reclining at the table. So in Luke chapter seven, we're gonna see Jesus reclining at the table, picking up in verse 36. Real quick, Luke is made up of 24 chapters. In nine of the 24 chapters, Jesus is doing something that involves eating food. And then if you incorporate chapters where he uses food as illustration, it covers more than half of the gospel, has food involved. And so one commentator jokingly said that in the gospel of Luke, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. I mean, he centered himself around eating food. And so today we're going to look at this discipline and this rhythm that Jesus modeled of reclining at the table. So let's pick up in verse 36. It says, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So real quick, you need to take note of, for the purpose of this story, of whose house he is present at, right? Which house is he at? He is at the Pharisee's house. Now, when Jesus ate with people, sometimes he ate with people you would never expect. I mean, sinners and tax collectors and scandalous people. Um, Other times he eats with people that you would assume he'd eat with, like the Pharisee. And so here he's eating with the religious leader. The religious leader asks him to recline at the table. 
All right, now look at verse 37. It says, Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. All right, so real quick, I want to give you a picture of what's happening here because I've, I've, for years, I'd say most of my Christian life, I've just assumed that the table that Jesus ate at was a table like we would eat at. It's just a table where you have um, a top and you sit with your legs underneath. I mean, think of Leonardo's, you know, Last Supper painting. Like that's what I thought reclining at the table was. Well, this week I've been studying up on what it was actually like, never done this before. And it turns out that the reclining at the table, this will make sense why the lady was behind his feet. Um, it, was, it was adopted by the Greco-Roman culture. And in the Greco-Roman culture, what they would have is they would have three couches in a U-shape. Okay, so this the, the couches, three couches in a U-shape with an opening right here. The opening would allow servants to come forward and, and serve food, right? It would also allow people, if it was in a semi-public area, to kind of peek into the conversation and join in for a little bit of time. And then the, t- the couches were at a 10-degree angle, and they would actually lay down. And so they would be laid down, feet behind them at a 10 degree angle, and they would have the tables within reach. And so reclining the table was laying down as you ate. And so after you ate your meal and had time, you just lay out, recline in that position um, and have an extended period of conversation. So Jesus is reclining at the table, he's laying down. So his feet are behind him as he's laying down and this lady comes up behind him to wash his feet. Now, I want you to think of like a modern day equivalent to what's happening here. Imagine that you are a part of Redeemer and there is a small group leader who is a a mover and shaker in town. This person is a a who's who of Johnson City. Maybe they sit on different boards and people know them. They have many leather bound books and their house smells of rich mahogany. Like like this this is a person, this is somebody. And so this person invites you to their house where they're hosting someone. They say, hey, would you come to my house for a dinner party? Like, well, who's, who's, who all is gonna be there? And they say, well, there's a person who's a public speaker and they're kind of controversial. I mean, some people love them, some people hate them, but I'm interested to hear what he has to say. And you have an open mind and you think, yeah, I'm gonna go to this dinner. So you go to this dinner to, to hear this speaker talk. And then as the dinner is happening, people are hovering around, drinking their drinks. What is this, it's charred? Cutery board? I never say it right. They're at the board with stuff on it, and they're picking grapes and cheeses and eating, just hanging out, and then boom, through the door comes in a lady, and she's scantily clad, low-cut top, high heels, tight skin stuff, and she comes in, and she just runs up and embraces the speaker and just grabs hold of him. Like, what are you thinking that this person's going to do? Like, are, is, is, like is, is he a client? Like, what, what, what is happening? Should he push her away and distance himself? I mean, like, why would he be associating with her? Because that's the picture we get with Jesus. In this moment, as she busts into the room and embraces Jesus, we're thinking, what's Jesus going to do? I mean, like, her reputation could ruin his reputation. I mean, what if someone thinks that the reason they know each other is because he's a client of hers? I mean, this is a scandalous moment. But what we see is that Jesus doesn't worry about her reputation ruining his, which is something we all need to believe and hold on to. If you're like, well, Jesus doesn't want me to follow him because my reputation could give him a bad name in town, so I'm just going to keep my distance from Jesus. Jesus doesn't care about your reputation running his. He cares about you. 
He cares about you and who God can make you to be, right? And so that's true of this woman, that's true of you. And so here he is, he doesn't push her away, instead he embraces her. All right, look at verse 39 through 40. It says, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, in other words, he's thinking this, he's not speaking it. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him, knowing his thoughts, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. So Jesus knows this guy's thoughts and his thoughts are condemning to Jesus. Like he, his thoughts are, are condemning Jesus for the way that he is treating this scandalous woman, right? But instead of Jesus defending his actions, instead of Jesus defending himself with why he didn't push her away, why he didn't distance himself, he instead chooses to explain hers with a story. So Jesus begins to explain what this woman is doing. It says a certain moneylender, this is the story he tells, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Right? And so the point of the story is pretty simple. If someone forgives you, you'll love them. If they forgive you a lot, you'll love them a lot. It's a really, really simple story that Jesus is painting here. Then in verse 44, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, this is Jesus speaking, turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I'm sure he's like the one that everyone's staring at. Like, yes, I see the woman, okay? He says, do you see this woman? I entered your house, whose house? Simon's house. I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. And so whose house is this? It's Simon's house. But who's the one that's actually hosting Jesus? The sinful woman. So she, in the story that's being explained by Luke, is actually the one who's hosting Jesus and treating Jesus as Jesus should be treated. And we see the answer to why in verse 47. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And so what we see at the end of this story is that your love for Jesus reflects how much you appreciate the depth of your forgiveness. Your love for Jesus reflects the, 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 how much you appreciate the depth of your forgiveness. All right, now, we're, we're talking about this story, and there's so much going on here, specifically in relation to the forgiveness of sins, your salvation by faith and faith alone. A lot's happening here, but I, I want to kind of get off topic to the main point of this story and zero in 
on Jesus reclining at the table. Like so we, we could have picked multiple instances of Jesus reclining at the table. This is just one of many. But why, what can we learn about Jesus's discipline or Jesus's rhythm of reclining at the table? Okay, what can we learn about reclining at the table? Well, first, reclining at the table in Jesus's culture is widely different than reclining at the table in our culture. Um, Studies show that from the time that I was a kid in the 80s to now, um, the amount of families that eat dinner together has declined by 33%. Of the families that still eat together, over half of them do so not at the table, but around the TV. And the average amount of times per week a family who eats together eats with each other is three times the average length of time each of those meals lasting only 20 minutes, right? And then the amount of people hosting people, the amount of people inviting people over to have them over to their table has decreased by 45%. So so this idea of being at the table with people is kind of countercultural at this point in our society, right? So so what can we learn from Jesus's rhythm of reclining at the table? Well, in the movie WALL-E, you you have this robot who's left on earth to clean up all the trash from humans. Then meanwhile, you, you have a group of humans who are on a spaceship cruising through space. And on this ship, they're all in these hovering chairs that really do everything for them. There's no need to have muscular strength because these chairs hold you upright. Um, There's no need to go and get information because information is delivered right to your screen. There's no need to chew food because you just drink food through a straw. And and this picture in Wally is that technology can be something that's dehumanizing, right? Technology can dehumanize us. And so as we get more caught up in the technology of our world of of gathering around the TV, if gathering at all, and and being more focused about our phone while we're sitting down to eat than what's happening around us, it might be having a dehumanizing effect on us. And so what Jesus is doing by reclining at the table is rehumanizing us. He is rehumanizing us. There's something about being at the table that reflects what it means for us to be truly human. You see, Jesus's life teaches us how to flourish in our humanity. And human flourishing requires relationships. And one of the best ways to establish, deepen, and enjoy relationships is through a meal. You see, when we recline at the table, it nourishes our need to know and to be known. You see, there's something about reclining at the table that rehumanizes us, that helps us to be truly human. Right? Jesus saw this as something so important. Let me ask you a question. If you were to fill in the blank, if I was just to fill in this sentence, the Son of Man came to dot, dot, dot. I want you to think about how you would fill that in. I mean, the Son of Man, Jesus, he came to this. Well, the, the New Testament gospels answer this question in three ways. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he came to serve. Um, the son of man came to seek and save that which is lost. And then let's look up before the story we just read. Look at verse 34 of chapter seven. The son of man has come eating and drinking. <laughs> And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. 
See, one of the three ways that the New Testament answers what Jesus came to do is he came to serve, he came to seek and save that which is lost, and he came to eat and drink, right? Like Jesus was serious about food. He was a foodie. I mean, he, so much so people are like, I think he's a drunk. I think he's a glutton. Like this dude loved to eat food. But I love this. If you think about this, the first two responses, that he came to serve, he came to seek, those are, are statements of purpose. They explain why Jesus came the third statement, he came eating and drinking, is a statement of philosophy. It's, it's a statement of method. And so if you were to say, Jesus, what's your philosophy of ministry? Jesus, what's your strategy for discipling people? Jesus, what's your, what's your mission strategy? What is your, what is your just, he would say, a meal that we don't rush out of. A meal that we just hang out and talk afterwards. Like that was his strategy for doing ministry was around the table. Right? But the table is bigger than food and drink. You see, Old Testament prophets compared the new heavens and earth to a divine banquet table. And I believe that Jesus saw reclining at the table as a way of bringing a taste of heaven to earth. If you, if you study the, the Celts, the people that kind of helped populate Western Europe, um, the, the, the Christians that were Celts considered the dinner table to be what they called a thin space. They considered it to be a place where the veil between heaven and earth was thin. Right? I believe that Jesus, in modeling this reclining at the table, eating meals together and, and being relational, being known and knowing others, is giving us a taste of what's to come in heaven. Some people think like heaven's gonna be, we're all babies with diapers and harps floating on clouds and like there's a piped organ with a choir and you know, like and we're singing for like, I don't wanna sing forever, that sounds horrible. Like, you're like, you're like that's, and like, no, no, heaven's gonna be so much more beautiful than that and a picture that we get of heaven is that of a divine banquet table. I mean, Reve read Revelation 19. <laughs> It's like this, this feast of the lamb. Like it's, it's gonna be a, a party. It's gonna be a feast. It's gonna be a huge table hanging out with Jesus, right? And so Jesus is doing this because he wants us to begin to have rhythms that help us to taste heaven to come. So the question I have for us this morning is how can we reclaim the table? How can we begin to reclaim the table? When I was in seminary, I lived with nine guys. Um, our house had 13 guys that lived there at some point, but at any given time, nine of us lived together. And one of the things that we had as a requirement, we, we, our, our house had a name, it was called the Duck and the Goose. And yes, there used to be pets, a duck and a goose. All right, but the house, all right, one of the requirements to live in this house, so if someone moved out and you were gonna move in, you had to agree to this. One of the non-negotiables was every Monday night, we had a family dinner. Every Monday night, it was family dinner where we ate together. And so if you were working a job where you had a shift that night, you had to find someone to cover your shift. If you had a test the next day, you were gonna stay up later. It didn't matter what was going on, you prioritized Monday night no matter what. And the way we did this is we were all from different places. I was from Texas, had roommates from Alabama, had roommates from Ohio, had roommates from Minnesota, like all different places. So we decided that one person is gonna fix food for everybody and do something from your, your, your cultural background. So whenever I fixed food, we, we went Tex-Mex, okay? But like, so you're gonna fix food. So I would, when it was my night for family dinner, I had to fix food for eight other guys, which was an expensive bill for a seminary student, right? And then for any guests that we brought over. But then after that, I had eight meals that I didn't have to pay a dime on. 
okay? But what we did is we, we had this meal, we got together, we ate, and then we would, we would invite people over. Sometimes we'd have seminary professors over. Sometimes we would have our, our lesbian neighbors from down the street come over and hang out with us. Sometimes we'd have our, our um, alcoholic neighbor who just got out of rehab come over. And like, we, we just invite people over to our dinner. Some people you'd expect, some people you wouldn't expect. And then we would, we would sing a song together. We would eat and just enjoy each other's company. And then afterwards we would just linger and hang out and talk about what was going on in life. And looking back to that table, to Monday night dinners, it, it was a great reminder that that was a taste of heaven to come. The way that we were doing dinner was much bigger than the food that we ate. It was modeling the life of Jesus and giving us a taste of something greater. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to slow down for a second. Okay, if you need to close your eyes, close your eyes, but get into your own little headspace and think about the last really good meal you had at someone's house. Think about the last really good meal you had at your house where you invited people over, right? So, so think about that. Who was with you, right? Who was around the table? What did you eat? What was served? Whose story did you resonate with? Like whose story was being told and you just kind of found yourself leaning in? Was music playing in the background? Like was dessert good? Were there multiple desserts to choose from? What happened after the eating stopped? I was talking to, to Jim Fickley, who's up here on Keys today. He's our, our equipping pastor. And I said, he, he eats well. Like when he has people to his house and host people, he does it well. I said, Jim, like what makes a, like what's the last good dinner you had immediately? He's like, for my birthday. He's like, he's like, he's like, he's like when, I, when I do a meal, he's like, I want something Italian. And he goes, we had spaghetti. And he goes, and my wife fixed this amazing dessert and I had a glass of wine. And he goes, and Godfather was playing in the background. I was like, Godfather? And he's like, yeah. He goes, when I have a dinner party, he goes, I make a playlist. So even the, even the music being played is intentional, right? So I want you to like, think about like, when's the time that you had a meal where you're just like, yes, this is what we ate. This is what was happening, okay? You see, if we want to reclaim the dinner table, we need to realize that we're gathering to linger over a meal, to cherish the conversations, to enjoy the flavors, to engage with the stories being told. And our job is not like fast food where our job is to consume. No, our, our job is to be present, to be fully present in this moment because a meal is meant to satisfy more than our physical needs. It's meant to satisfy our souls. And as we do this, what you need to realize is you're actually practicing for heaven to come. You're practicing for the feast of the land that we'll one day be able to sit at. So my encouragement to us, if we wanna live like Jesus, is to be a people who begin to have rhythms of reclining at the table. So let's be a people who reclaimed the table to be a taste of heaven for the world that we're in. God, thank you for your word this morning. I pray for us to be a people who would recline well in a world that moves so fast where we go, 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 that you would help us to slow down because there is a deep need for us 
in our ability to flourish as you've created us to flourish, to be relational. And one of the best ways you modeled for us to have deep, meaningful relationships is through sharing meals together. So God, let Redeemer be a place that eats well because we're doing it to practice for heaven. Let's be a people who eat well knowing that we're inviting your presence to be there. And God, let that be our strategy. Let discipleship happen around our tables. Let mission happen around our tables. God, let heaven happen around our tables. Shalom, we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this audio from Redeemer Community Church in Johnson City, Tennessee. You can connect with us and find out more information at RedeemerCommunity.com.